Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening entered the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin in 1966, was solemnly professed in 1970, and was ordained to the priesthood in 1972. Having earned his BA in philosophy at St. Fidelis College, an MA in systematic theology at Washington Theological Union, and a doctorate in historical theology at King's College, University of London, Father Winandi's major fields of specialty are history of Christology, history of Trinitarian theology, history of soteriology, and philosophical notions of God. He has held academic positions at Georgetown University, Mount St. Mary's College, Franciscan University of Steubenville, Loyola College, and the University of Oxford. Author of numerous books, Father Winandi has served as the president of the Academy of Catholic Theology, chief of staff for the U.S. Bishops Committee on Doctrine, and member of the Vatican's International Theological Commission. Please join me in welcoming to the Institute of Catholic Culture for the first time, Father Tom Winandi. Well, it is an honor uh, to speak before all you, and I welcome all you on online. Right now, it says on my computer, there's what just went up one, 348. That's very good, I would think. Uh, so I'm pleased and honored to be invited to, to speak to all of you this evening who are participating in the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm listening into all that you do, you do a great deal, and it's wonderful uh, all that you do uh, to educate in the faith and, and help build up the body of Christ, uh, which is the church. Now, Father Hezekiah has asked me to speak on the importance of doctrine, especially or particularly on Cardinal Newman's uh, lecture, small lecture, small speech that he gave, known as the Bibli. Biblietto uh, speech, uh, given in Rome at the time when he was uh, elected uh, to the cardinalate. Uh, those who were there was a gathering of, of English distinguished people, uh, as well as Roman dignitaries. Uh, and he spoke there at the importance, the importance, the necessity uh, of doctrine and his concerns uh, about what is, was happening to doctrine at his time, that was being dismissed and ridiculed and made fun of and attacked and seen as no importance. And we'll uh, go into that momentarily. Now, I would, uh, I would not claim to be a, a Newman, Newman scholar. Um, I've done a little bit work on him, but 
uh, and I took a course when I was in the seminary uh, on Cardinal Newman at Catholic University of America. And during that course, uh, uh, we had the uh, opportunity to read his major works, The Grammar of Ascent, The Idea of a University, The Development of Doctrine, and his Apologia Pro Vita Suum. Uh, and so it's there that I first got to know and appreciate uh, Cardinal Newman's thought. Uh, my affection uh, grew uh, when I was in Oxford. I taught at the University of Oxford for, for 12 uh, years. I was the head of a small uh, Capuchin uh, college attached to the university and taught uh, in the Faculty of Theology in the university. Uh, but obviously, being in Oxford, you, you can't help to have an affection for, for Newman because uh, his presence in some ways are, are still there. You have his rooms at, at Oriel College, for example, that I visited in Littlemore, where uh, he became Catholic and where he wrote his development of doctrine, uh, doctrine book prior to his becoming Catholic. And I had the, the privilege, the opportunity to say Mass on the very altar uh, where where he himself offered mass during the time that he was there. Uh, as you might know, he was gave many, many of his famous sermons at the university church, uh, Mary the Virgin. And I, I even had the privilege of preaching from that pulpit. Um, uh, in Oxford, they have two university sermons uh, during the year that are quite important. One is virtue of humility, uh, which is given at Advent, and the uh, vice of pride, which is given during Lent. And I was able to, I was asked once to give the uh, like the sermon, the university sermon on the virtue of humility. So I was able to stand and preach from that very pulpit, which, which was quite a, a marvelous, in a sense, moving experience. And so it's, I did there, I grew in my affection and love for Cardinal Newman during my time at Oxford. But having said that, uh, it's, I think we should begin. What did Newman have to say uh, about the disparagement of doctrine in his day? Uh, in the course of his Newman's life, his academic life and his spiritual journey, uh, he became more and more aware of the importance of doctrine, the necessity of doctrine within the church's life. Uh, and because it was doctrine that defined and defended and proclaimed the great mysteries of our faith, the Trinity, the Incarnation, the sacraments, the Eucharist, uh, the church, all these basic doctrines that made Catholicism and Christianity what it is. And yet at the time that he lived, he saw this whole concept of doctrine uh, being undermined and, and ridiculed as being unimportant to what it means to be a Catholic or a Christian. And so uh, uh, in this speech that he gave uh, just during while he was in Rome becoming a cardinal, uh, he addressed this issue. And he begins... Uh, early on, he says, and I rejoice to say, he's rejoicing at saying this. He says, to one great mischief, one great mischief, he's rejoicing in this mischief. He says, I had from the first opposed myself 
And what has he opposed himself with great joy and mischief? He says, for 30, 40, 50 years, I've resisted the best of my powers, the spirit of liberalism, the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. And on this great occasion, when it is natural for one in my place to look out into the world and upon the Holy Church as a as in it, and upon her future, it will not, I hope, be considered out of place if I renew my protest against that which is so often made. So he sees what he calls this liberalism, this liberalism within religion as a great threat. But the question is, why is liberalism, as Newman understands it, such a great threat to doctrine and to the church and all the mysteries of the faith that the church upholds. He has this to say, liberalism in religion is the doctrine. Notice he calls it a doctrine. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine. What is the doctrine? That there is no positive truth. It's a doctrine that there's nothing that can be truly true. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, but one that would that but that one creed is as good as another. The liberalism of his day was the doctrine that one creed, one creed is as good as another. Of course, within uh, Newman's context, this meant that the creed of Luther or the creed of Calvin or the creed of Knox or the various creeds within the Anglican Communion, they were one was good as another. Catholicism was in no better creed than any, any other creed. Of course, in our day, the liberalism is not just simply a liberalism by which we decide or distinguish the creed of the Lutherans today or the Calvinists today, uh, but the creeds of other religions. Uh, we have this whole notion of the pluralism of religion and that the creed of Islam or the creed of that we might say about Hinduism or Buddhism or any other religion, the new age, one creed is just as good as another. Newman would be surprised at how much many more creeds there are vying for a place, but which none of them, none of them make any difference whatsoever. And he says in this, that one creed is good as another is a teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated, for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not true, but a sentiment and a taste, not on the objective fact, not miraculous. And it is the right of each individual to make it say what just what he thinks strikes his fancy. Devotion, lived religion, is not necessarily founded on faith. Men may go about, go to a Protestant church one day and to a Catholic another. One may be good from, get, get good from both and belong to neither. They fraternalize together in spiritual thoughts and feelings without any views at all of doctrine in common and seeing the need for none. Since then, religion is so personal and peculiarity 
And so private a possession was necessarily ignored in intercourse to man. Last thing you want to talk about is religion, especially if you believe something's true, because you're just going to start an argument. Uh, it's like talking about politics. Um, if one man puts a new religion every day, that is up to him. It is as impertinent to think about a man's religion as about the sources of his income or the management of his family. Religion is in no sense the bond of society. For Newman, the problem with the liberalism of his day is the whole sense that truth cannot be attained, and especially truth with regards to what has been revealed. There is no such thing as infallible doctrines, no such things as doctrines that have been revealed and that can be known and can be professed and can be defended. Doctrine itself is just an opinion that one can fancy one day and not another. But you notice at the end he talks about doctrine is not in any sense a part of the social ordering. It's not part of civil society. He says, now everywhere that God goodly framework of society, doctrine, which is the creation of Christianity, is throwing off Christianity. Hitherto it has been considered that religion alone with its supernatural sanctions was strong enough to help the masses and all people live with law and order. Instead of the church's authority and teaching, they would substitute, first of all, a universal and thoroughly secular education calculated to bring home to every individual that to be orderly, industrious, and sober is his personal interest. As to religion, it is a private luxury, which man may have if he will, which, of course, he must pay for, and which he must not obtrude upon others or indulge in to their annoyance. The general character of this great apostasy is one and the same everywhere. I think we see here how prophetic Newman was, not only about the value of doctrine within religion, but the value of doctrine, the value of gospel truths and gospel principles within society. And, and we, <laughs> Father Hezekiah was earlier on talking about these things were not planned to appear on this night. We didn't know how much uh, they are relevant to our own day, where religion is literally being knocked down all over our country at the present moment. And the reason is because you know, religion is not important. As a matter of fact, it's seen as an evil. And try to, to talk about one's religion as being true that should be believed just can no longer be tolerated, not only in Newman's time, but in our time as well. Now, I would like to talk in light of what Cardinal Newman had to say about two topics, two topics that I think are very important and which I'm sure Newman would also consider very important as well. The first topic is the human ability, the human ability to know what is true. Are human beings such that they can actually know something to be true? Or is everything that we say to be true just our opinion 
unprovable prejudice, but not really true. So is, are we as human beings able to know the truth? The second point that I want to speak to also this evening is why Catholic or Christian doctrine is important. Why is it important uh, for our life as Christians, our life as Catholics in our world today? Now, when we talk about are human beings able to know the truth, I that, that topic or that question came when I was speaking to Father Hezekiah a couple of months ago when we were planning this lecture. And I said, Father Hezekiah, do you really want me to go to uh, into Aristotelian and Thomistic uh, epistemology? And he said, yes. And I thought, uh, but I, I decided I'm not going to go there. If people have questions on uh, Aristotelian and Thomistic uh, epistemology, we can do it at the question and answer time. I, I want to do something a little bit different, which I think is, is in a sense uh, very important because it, it's the foundation of way of, of Aristotelian Thomistic epistemology. What I want to do is give the biblical sort of basis, the prolegomenon, uh, to being able to know the truth. And I want to start with God. We know or we believe that God, as he revealed himself to Moses, is he who is. He is being itself. His very nature is to be. Uh, we could go in this with the Trinity as well, how the Trinity are, are fully in act and fully being as well in three different ways, but uh, that will take us far afield and that would be another lecture. So we'll stick with the easy part. We'll just talk about God. Uh, God is being itself. It's he who, he who is. I am who am. And because he is he who is, he can be a creator. He can be a creator. And you noticed in the book of Genesis, in the opening story of creation, the first creation story, God says, let there be, let there be. And whatever he said, let there be, came to be. It came to exist. Let there be light. And light came to be. Let there be trees and plants and animals and the sea and the stars. And the trees and the plants and the animals came to be. They came into existence. And it's God. It's God who created the science of metaphysics. He's the one responsible for the science of metaphysics. That is the study of what is, the study of being. And only he, not Thales or Plato or Aristotle, they did not start the science of metaphysics, the science of being. It's God in creating who brought about the science of being, that things are, that things exist. And he did so because he is the one who is. He's the one who truly is. He's the one, as he says, who is. I am who am. So he's the origin of something that exists, that we have things that be. Now, 
When God made human beings, he made them in his own image and likeness. And in so making human beings in his own image and likeness, he founded the science of epistemology, the, the ability to be able to know what is. Because we're in the image and likeness of God, we're able to know in some manner as God himself knows. God knows all that is. And we who are created in his image and likeness can also come to know the truth of what is. We can know the truth that a tree is a tree, an ant's an ant, whatever it might be. We have the ability to know that which is, and we can know the truth of that which is. So God, God is the greatest defense against liberalism that Numa so much railed against because God is the one who created all that is, and he's the one that gave us the ability to know the truth of all that is. And because he created us in his image and likeness, we can not only know what is here in this natural order of creation, the stars, the trees, the the cosmos in many different ways, but the fact that we have an intellect to know what is here, here on earth or in the cosmos, the world, the universe, we also have the ability, the opening, to receive revelation from God that exceeds what can naturally be known. And therefore, we have to ask the question, well, how does God reveal to us things that we did not know and would not know if he himself had not revealed them to us? How does that take place? Because it's in knowing what God reveals to us that we would not know if he did not inform us. We would have no basis for doctrine. The truths that God reveals, the truths that we can know. And so we need to ask the question, what is the nature of Christian revelation? The nature of Christian revelation that is the basis for Catholic doctrine, that which God reveals. Now, when we normally think about what is revelation and how does God reveal, I think often we think of it as God just telling us things we do not know, things that we were ignorant of and couldn't find out on our own and would never surmise by just studying the universe. But he just tells us now things that we did not know before, like, well, the one God is a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We now know that. We had never figured it out before, but now we know it. But I think this notion of God's revelation of just telling us things we did not know is not correct in its entirety. We speak of the Word of God. The Old Testament says, thus says God. Thus says, the Word of God says this. However, if we limit it to that, if that, and if that becomes the primary means of God's revelation, the manner in which he reveals, I think we verge or can even fall into Gnosticism or Protestantism. 
which sees, both of which often see, especially Gnosticism, of revelation of just the revealing of truths that we did not know previously. If you remember ancient Gnosticism and contemporary Gnosticism, there's a lot of contemporary Gnosticism going on out there. Uh, the New Age is all contemporary Gnosticism. Uh, it, if you remember the, the, what Gnosticism is, Gnosticism is uh, where one believes that one receives knowledge, esoterical, religious, philosophical knowledge, by which one can be saved. So let's take, for example, Islam is a Gnostic religion, okay? It's a Gnostic religion because all Muhammad does, supposedly, is tell us things that we didn't know and what we are to do to have the right relationship with God. In Gnosticism, nothing changes. The only change is that we go from ignorance to knowledge. With Muhammad, what he did was tell us things that we needed to know or and do if we were going to have the right relationship with God and thus be saved, whatever saved might then mean. All religions, all religions in the history of the world are Gnostic, except for Judaism and Christianity. Only Judaism and Christianity are not Gnostic. And the reason they're not Gnostic is because divine revelation is not just the telling of things we did not know, but actions performed by God that changes our relationship to God. The words explain to us, inform us, what the meaning of the actions are. But the actions are what is important. The words reveal to us, tell us, inform us, of the meaning of the actions that God has performed in time and history. So for example, in the Old Testament, God did say to Moses, I am who am, but he manifested that by making a covenant with them. And this covenant with the Jewish people made them God's people. God enacted a covenant to which the people agreed to. There was a covenant made between them and God. And this covenant was an action that now brought about a relationship to God that only the Jews had and did not have prior to the action of God itself. It's only because God acted and took his Jewish nation into himself that they became the chosen people of God. Prior to God's action, that was not possible. And no other nation, because God did not act in any other nation, had a special relationship with God that only the Jews had in a singular way. In the New Testament, what we find in Jesus Christ is actions of God. The Son of God became man through the action of God the Father sending his Son into the world and through the action of the Holy Spirit conceiving the Son, Jesus, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That is what is revealed. The revelation is an action, but the word incarnation tells you what the action was. The Son of God becoming man by the power of the Holy Spirit. The doctrine is the incarnation, but the doctrine tells us of an action. 
the action of the Son of God taking on human flesh and being conceived and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus performed actions, the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms. He also taught like the Beatitudes, but it's the actions that change our relationship with God through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Those actions forgave us our sins. And in the resurrection, Jesus is able to now give us a new kind of life, a new kind of life with his Father, again through the action of the Holy Spirit, by sending out the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, upon those who believe. Those who believe and are baptized now have a new relationship with God that was not possible prior to the incarnation, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's only those actions and the the end result, the whole point of all these actions was so for the outpouring of the Spirit. And that action through faith and baptism ushers us in, subsumes us in to a new relation with God our Father as his beloved children. So we see that doctrines are not just things that God tells us. They're doctrines about actions that God performs, and they're actions that we now can participate in. Here's another big difference between Gnosticism, which every religion is except Judaism and Christianity, is that in order to reap the benefits of Jesus' saving actions, We have to abide in him. Only if we abide in him do we become a new creation. Only if we abide in Jesus are we cleansed of sin. Only if we abide in Jesus are we temples of the Holy Spirit. Only if we abide in Jesus do we have the guarantee for the resurrection. Only if we abide in Jesus are we sons and daughters of the Father. Once Muhammad or anybody else said what they had to say, they ceased to be important. The important thing is not them. The important thing is the knowledge they could give. Same with Aristotle or Plato. Once you got to Mystic or Aristotelian uh, epistemology, well, you don't need Aristotle anymore. You know, but that's not the case with Jesus. You have to abide in Jesus, the son of the living God, the resurrected Jesus, to reap the benefits of the revelatory actions, the saving actions that God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, enacted in space and time. And it's interesting, uh, Jesus didn't tell the disciples as he was walking along the roads of Galilee, he said, uh, guys, he didn't say guys, Uh, by the way, in case you're wondering, there's three of us. Uh, No, no, he, he did not do that at all. And, uh, the persons of the Trinity revealed who they are by the actions that are performed. We know that Jesus is the Son of God by the Son kind of actions he performed. We know there's a Father because he sent the Son. And, and then we know there's a Holy Spirit because the Spirit works in our life. It's through the actions of the Trinity that we come to know them. And the actions of the Trinity are the very actions which subsume us into the very reality of what we believe, the Trinity. So, 
My point being here is that the reason doctrine then is so important is because doctrine tells us not just abstract truths, but realities of which we ourselves participate in. It's the actions of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those actions that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enact are the very acts that allows us to participate in the very life of the Trinity. And so the doctrine of the Trinity is not just, well, the one God, the great mystery, the great mystery that no priest knows how to preach upon on Trinity Sunday. <laughs> As because they don't meditate. It's the greatest mystery there ever is, obviously. It's a foundational mystery. Uh, and without that mystery, we, there would be no creation. There would be no redemption. You know, it's, it's the Trinity that makes all that possible. And so, but it's the marvelous truth of the doctrine of the Trinity that is our foundational doctrine because ultimately it's that Trinity that saved us created us, and it's that doctrine of the Trinity in which we actually live and move and have our being. To deny the truth, to deny the doctrine of the Trinity, is to deny the heart of what God has done for us, the very revelation of himself and the actions that he's performed in time and history. The great doctrine of the Incarnation it's a great doctrine of God's action of the Father sending the Son into the world, incarnating him in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. But that doctrine, the incarnation, is a doctrine in which, again, we participate. We now exist right now. You and I live and abide in the risen incarnate Son of God. It's a truth we live by. And to deny the doctrine or see it as unimportant or not making any difference is ridiculous because it's a doctrine in which we live. And without it, we would not be alive. We would not be saved. And of course, the doctrines of the sacraments, of baptism, the Eucharist, confession, all, all the sacraments are actions. And all these sacraments are actions wherein Jesus himself acts and through his action, we come into relationship with him. The primordial one, the first one is baptism, by which in being baptized, we enter into and abide in Jesus and so become children of the Father. Obviously, communion, it, you know, the real presence, it's a doctrine. Transubstantiation is a doctrine, but it's a doctrine that's so important because it's the real risen body and blood of Jesus that we receive. And therefore, in receiving it, we're in real communion with Jesus as he now really exists. And being in communion with Jesus as he now really exists, we're in communion with the Father, in the fullness of his fatherhood as God the Father now exists. We have the doctrine of the church only by abiding in the church. The church is not just an abstract institution that has rules or a structure but it's a reality in which we come to faith and live out our Christian life. Without the church, there would be no guarantee of the truths of the faith. There would no be an actment of the truths of the faith. The doctrine of the church guarantees 
all that Jesus has revealed and then all the realities in which we live, the doctrine of the second coming. If the second coming is just a sentiment, I'm getting out of here. Uh, you know, it's especially in our world today, I keep thinking, man, I wish the second coming would come so that we could actually experience what is true and good and right and just in the midst of so much chaos and lies. But that'll get all sorted out in the second coming. Uh, but that's a reality. It's a doctrine. But it's one that we should long for when Jesus Christ will receive the glory and honor that he has deserved since the foundation of the world. So this is why. This is why liberalism is so dangerous an error. It undermines, it belittles, it sees as no important, not some philosophical truth, but the very realities of which we as Catholics and Christians hold to be true and know that we live in and participate and hold dear to our heart. If the doctrine is the incarnation is taught true, we can't love Jesus. If the doctrine of the Trinity is not true, we don't abide in the Trinity. If Jesus is not truly present in the Eucharist, we can't be in communion with him. And this is why the liberalism of humans' day and the liberalism of our day is so heinous because it wants to deny us the most important things in our life, the things that God has given us in his love and through his actions. So Newman, as I said before, was a prophet. And the battle he fought now, I think, is a battle that has not lessened but intensified. And we who are Catholics, we have to be part of this battle. We have to know why doctrine is important. We got to know that we can know it. But more important, we got to know that we can live it. And it's that in that living that we testify to its truth. And testifying to its truth, we nullify the lie of liberalism. We show it to be false because truth always in the end wins the day. For the lies of Satan are empty. Thank you. Thank you so much, Father Wanyandi. That was fantastic. Really a wonderful, wonderful lecture. And I, it certainly gave me a lot to think on and pray on in the coming weeks. So thank you so much for that. All right. So, Father Wanyandi, are you ready for some questions? Ready. Let's get started with Dr. Pepino. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Father, thank you very much for a, a wonderful talk. With, there's a lot to think about. It's multi-layered, and there's a lot more than meets the eye immediately, I think, in what you said. Now, this is my question for you. It would seem, according to what you said regarding Gnosticism versus what it is to be a true Christian with respect to doctrine, that one could, in fact, profess the doctrines taught by the church, but in a Gnostic way. I'm thinking in particular of a, a theologian whom I won't name, who said in, an influential theologian, who said that he believed in the doctrine of the Assumption of Our Lady because it had been defined, but it didn't affect his life of a Christ, as a Christian in any way. And so is it possible then for someone to all appearances be a Christian, but in fact be a Gnostic 
who simply happens to profess Christian doctrines? Well, I, su I suppose that's possible, but you wonder why, why anyone would want to believe the doctrines of the church. It would appear that it made no difference to them. Uh, now, you know, with regards to the assumptions, I always say, well, that's, uh, that's not a, one of the, the core ones, you know, the incarnation or the Trinity or the Eucharist. Uh, so it, if it, that doesn't, doesn't make much difference. But I would say to that, that uh, Mary's assumption is sort of the guarantee, the, the prophetic anticipation of what the church and each of us will be, you know? I, I always think of the assumption as the test case. Jesus says, well, I rose from the dead. Well, let's see if it really works on somebody else. <laughs> and they choose Mary. Mary's a good candidate, you know. And, but but uh, and so she's she's assumed into heaven. Uh, but she's in a sense the guarantee that it actually does work, you know. And, and so that that should give us great hope and anticipation uh, of what we're all going to be like. So I, I yes, I, I suppose it is possible, and people probably do it, but. But it's that becomes sort of schizophrenic, you know. Uh, if you if you, you know, why believe, uh, you know, that the Pittsburgh Pirates are the best baseball team if you don't have any care about baseball? I mean, it's, it's the whole point is you want to rejoice in these things, you know. Uh, that's the point of believing because you see the relevance for your life and eternal salvation and relevance. Yeah, well, one wonders whether this profession of, of faith in the doctrine is uh, is a hundred percent truthful. Well, that's right. That's true. You know, yeah. Does he <laughs> does he really believe to begin with? You know, yeah, that's right. Thank you, Father, for your answer. Yeah, thank you. Let's go with this one from Ronald. Ronald is um, wondering: Is liberalism the same as relativism? Well, yes, yes. I think we could say that. I, I think uh, in our day and age. You know, uh, we could call it, you know, a relativism, the, a relativism that, um, well, it's, it's relativism is in the sense that there's no such thing as true. Uh, and, and it's relativism in the sense that because of that, nothing's really ultimately important uh, with regards to, to, to religion. Uh, that one religion, one faith, one denomination is as good as the next. So yes, it's um, it's it is a it is a, a form of, of of relativism, and of course you know it's Pope Benedict says you know we have uh, the dictatorship of relativism. Everything is relative. Uh, uh, it can be tolerated and relative, except those who don't believe that everything is relative. You know. This next question is coming in from Teresa. She is saying that it, it's sometimes overwhelming to see the acceptance of pluralism by um, many people in the clergy, and it's hard to know how to respond. Another person was writing in that it seems like they get the impression from some um, church uh, or like teaching from their priest that seems to imply that many different roots to God are all um, the same. And both of these people are wondering how how what are some practical ways that we can testify to the truth? Okay. 
Well, I, I sympathize with this problem uh, very much. And unfortunately, you can have clergy today who are some of the biggest promoters of this. I mean, it's sort of a false sentimentality in a sense that we want to get along with everybody and and God loves everybody and and therefore, you know, you can be saved being a Buddhist or a Muslim or whatever. Um, and and in the end, in the end, it comes down to uh, whether they're priests or other Christians or not, but especially sad with, with regards to priests or, or bishops, is that they really do not know Jesus and love him and appreciate what he had done for them. He, he's done for us something that only he could have done by being the son of God who became man, died, and rose from the dead and sent for the Holy Spirit. No other uh, uh, founder of religion has done that anywhere near that. And, 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 and what it shows is a real lack of faith, a living faith. The people who say this just do not have a living faith. They do not love Jesus and appreciate him for what he has done, that he alone deserves all glory and honor and praise. And I think, you know, to counteract that, I, I think you, you testify to the fact why you love Jesus and think he's the only one that deserves to be loved uh, in a manner in which you just try, you try in, in, to, to love him, you know? Uh, Muslims esteem Muhammad, but do they really love him? I mean, I, I mean, the way we love Jesus, you know, uh, can you love Buddha? I don't know. Um, uh, but we love Jesus even more than our, you know, spouses and children, you know, as Jesus said, you know, uh, because he's the only one that can save us. You know, he's, when we die, our spouse is pretty helpless, to say the least. Uh, but Jesus is, he can, we, we are sure to be resurrected and be united again with our loved ones. Um, so I think, I, you know, it, it's, I, I think in love, it, it, you know, you have to be firm in, in witnessing to who, who Jesus is to counteract this and, and say clearly, you know, that there is a difference, you know, there is a difference. You, being a Muslim doesn't make you God your father, you know. Uh, believing in what Muhammad says doesn't make you a temple of the Holy Spirit. Only, only faith in Jesus can do that. Thank you. That's a beautiful answer. Alexander is writing in and is wondering what is the um, most influential or important school of thought that led to the rise of liberalism. Liberal, well. Man, I'm I'm not sure about this answer. I mean, there's probably philosophers out there who who would be better at this than I am. I think uh, the Enlightenment uh, would be uh, part of this. That you know, the only truths that we can know are you know scientific, mathematical truths. Uh, the rest is all opinion; it can't be proven. And so, uh, deism that flowed out of out of uh, uh, the Enlightenment, I think you know the skepticism that you find in Kant. We can, you know, we can know the phenomena, what we see, but we can't know the reality behind it, the noumena. 
so we can't really know the truth uh, as such. We only know appearances. I think empiricism that comes out of out of Locke and um, Hume. Uh, you know, uh, you know that we can't really know the truth. We, you know, for Hume, you can't know causality. Uh, you know, again, I think all all the skeptical uh, philosophical uh, schools that grew up in and around the Enlightenment and after that, I think, um, it causes all this. And of course, that seeped into into theology. You know, Hegel Hegel philosophizes the whole Christian doctrine. The, your Christian doctrine is just sort of a, the the mystical religious way of of, of uh, saying his philosophy, where the absolute is coming to know itself. And so, you know, it becomes uh, the doctrines themselves are not true. They're just uh, mystical religious ways of saying something philosophical. And, but again, we have to counter that, you know, having a realistic epistemology that we can know the things that God brought into being, you know, including uh, the revelation that he's given us. All right, Amanda, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Thank you, Father. I was just thinking, since we're formed in part by the people around us and our experiences, and these errors are so prevalent, how can you examine and discern whether our own actions and words or even our prayers are falling into these errors? You mean that you might be so influenced by the zeitgeist around you that you could fall in the same errors that they're falling into? I mean, that's possible if you're not on guard, if you don't critically uh, refute or, say, you know, engage uh, what's happening around you, you could easily uh, fall prey to it, you know. Uh, but, however, if you're practicing your the faith, you know, uh, th- that should not happen. You know, if, if you know, if in your prayer, uh, you're, you're praying to Jesus and you're saying the Our Father with faith and know that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, and if you go to confession and and participate in the Eucharist as, with as much fervor as you can, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to guard your heart and mind from falling into the errors that, that surround us in the world. Uh, you know, I've been working on the Gospel of John and writing a book um, uh, called Jesus Becoming Jesus. But uh, uh, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. He's the guarantee, and, and Jesus says he'll guide you to all truth. And if we, you know, if we stay in touch with the Spirit through our prayer and participate in the sacraments and, and this kind of, of a living Christian life, we're not going to fall into error, you know? We're not going to be fall prey to the zeitgeist around. We may be tempted, but we're not going to fall. You know, we're going to be strong. Uh, and, and of course, if, you know, uh, one of the ways is by bearing witness to it. By bearing witness to the faith, you're not only trying to convince others, but you're reaffirming the faith within your own heart and mind as well. So it, it may not convince others. I always feel preaching, the first person you're preaching to is not the congregation, it's to yourself. You should enjoy, you should enjoy you know, hearing you preach the gospel. You should enjoy enumerating the doctrines of the faith. 
you know, you know, it's, I hope in some ways it came across. I enjoy my preaching in the sense that I enjoy telling myself the truths that I believe, you know, if I don't enjoy hearing about the truths of the faith, my congregations is not going to enjoy hearing it, you know? If it's not alive for me, it's not gonna come alive for them. Uh, when I taught in the classroom, I would teach the same thing year after year, and I would still get more excited than the students in front of me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's because uh, hopefully they meant so much to me. Yeah, thank you so much, Father. Your joy certainly has come across and your enthusiasm. And it's definitely been an inspiring um, witness to all of us this evening. Well, we have so many good questions that have been coming in. Um, I just want to end on this one, which is Regina's asking, Father, do you have any recommended reading after this talk? If you want reading from Newman, I mean, I mean, his books are quite large, but I, I, I think reading his book on the development of doctrine would be very, very good to read. Um, and also his Apologia for Provita Sua, where he, he explains the journey of his faith uh, and his spiritual journey and the, and the, and the questions that uh, he confronted in his day, uh, because it, it shows how he became, becomes more and more aware of the importance of doctrine. Since I'm not, as I said, a human scholar, I don't know the latest literature or a lot, but in a, but I would think of, you know, reading the apology or the, or the uh, development of doctrine would be, be good, but there are very good lives of, of Newman out there as, as well. Okay. Thank you. Yes. And we also, um, especially for those who are new to the Institute, we have had many talks on Newman this past year. So, um, if you have time for a one-hour lecture, we have lots of Newman talks in our library. And um, if you go to the talk page for tonight's event, under posted content, we have this handout, which is his Billiato speech. So it's just a three-page document. I'm sure many of you, if you enjoyed the talk this evening, you'll really enjoy Newman's words here. Thank you so much. Would you um, conclude us in prayer and with your blessing, Father? Okay. Lord Jesus. We come before you and we place ourselves in your most sacred heart. And we ask that within your heart, you pour out the spirit of truth upon us, that we might always know the truth of who you are and the truth, all the truth that you reveal to us and in which we have live and move and have our being. And so that in knowing you, we proclaim to the world the truth that you are the only Lord and the only Savior. And it's only in you that we will have life. And so tonight, Jesus, we give you all glory and honor and praise. For you live forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.